0: as always, I'd invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open it up to Acts chapter 1. There's some in the pews in front of you. You can use an app on your phone or, of course, the bulletin that you grabbed as you walked in as we kick off this brand new Sermon series, The First Christians. Our goal over the next several weeks together as a family of faith, the body of Christ, those God has called here, 6335 South Holly Street, to re-engage in what we believe is a very urgent and a very bold vision to help ordinary people know and share extraordinary life in Christ. It's urgent. It's needed. And there's no better place to look than the first book here, Acts, uh, the the second book of Luke, rather, Acts, where we see, in this case, a very handful of the first Christians, just maybe 20 of them, Who, out of their faithfulness through the work of the Holy Spirit, created this movement we call Christianity. And it's fair to say it is a true statement that our world that we know today, the country in which we live, the Western world, even the the, the global world, would not be the same if it wasn't for Christianity, for example. You can go back and you can Google this when you get home. The hospital systems that we just go to in and out, the urgent cares, everything that we do to take care of our health in terms of health care, that has a direct root, a direct tie-in to the Christian faith. The university system, if you've been to college, if you've been to high school, if you've been to elementary school, schools were founded by Christians especially the university system, Christians who believed that the way to help all humanity flourish was to give them access to education, to help them learn, to help them grow. The 11th century, the first university, was founded by Christians. The social programs that we have, especially here in America, the soup kitchens, the homeless shelters, the aid for orphans, orphanages, that was directly a result of men and women who took Jesus at his word that we should care for the poor and the sick and the orphan and the widow and science science our modern science all the things that you enjoy about your life today the iPhone maybe that you have or the car that you drive science itself Again, Christians, men like Galileo, Copernicus, Isaac Newton, they were Christians, and they got excited about science because they believed that by studying the origins of this world, the way the world works, mathematics, we could actually point to this awesome creator, this magnificent God who designed all these things. The world would not be the same. We would not have the same world without the first Christians. And our goal, though, today is to look at what we can learn from them, this movement, this urgent mission that we have. And to do that, I wanna try to answer three questions for us as we kick off this sermon series. Number one, who were the first Christians? It's important that we know that. Two, what was their mission exactly? And then three, some practical application. What does that have to do with us today, with you as an individual, with us as this family of faith? So let's dive into the first question. Who were the first Christians? And we get a generic list here. If you look down with me in verse 12, Luke names them for us. Actually, starting with verse 13, uh, they're in an upper room, and it says that it's the 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot who had killed himself. But then there were some women in the room, Mary, the mother of Jesus, some other women probably Mary and Martha, Lazarus's sisters, good friends of Jesus probably Mary Magdalene and Salome the first two eyewitnesses of the resurrection and then Jesus's brothers. And we read this and we can say okay that's good they were there. But it's really important for us to understand in terms of our own understanding our own life together how really different and radical a community this was. Let's start with Matthew. Matthew we know was a tax collector. And in that society, in Jewish society, he was one of the elite members of society. Number one, he was probably very wealthy. Tax collectors were wealthy. First of all, they got a salary from the Roman Empire. Second of all, they kind of took some money off the top, pay me some taxes to Caesar, one for Caesar, a half for me. And so the tax collectors became very wealthy. They were elite members of society. They were highly educated, and they were also primarily hated by the average, ordinary member of Jewish society because nobody likes paying taxes. The tax attorneys like that you pay taxes. Normal people don't like paying taxes. That was Matthew. Now, on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum was a guy that Luke mentions by the name of Simon the Zealot. And we know from history that the Zealots were really anarchists. They were strongly anti-Rome. They hated the Roman Empire because they were occupying Jerusalem. And for 300 years prior to this account in scriptures, it was the zealots who were trying, actively scheming to get rid of the Roman Empire. To put it in a metaphor, language that you might better understand, these are the rebels from the Star Wars galaxy, okay? Luke and Han Solo fighting against the evil empire. That was their DNA. That's what they were trying to do. Politically, imagine this. You've got Matthew on one end, and you've got Simon the Zealot on the other, and sandwiched in between them were the everyday, average blue collar workers Peter, James, John, Andrew, the fishermen, with calloused hands, scars on their back from lifting the heavy nets out of the water into the boat, just trying to put a meal on the table. You could not have found a more eclectic group of people than those Jesus first called to be the 12 disciples. Now, that's them. Also interesting in this mix were Jesus' brothers. And if you remember from Scripture, when Jesus first walks onto the scene, when he comes out and reveals that he's the Savior of the world, do you remember what his brothers thought of him? text tells us they thought that he was out of his mind. They thought that Jesus was crazy, insane. And yet somehow, over the course of the 40 days, probably that Luke talks about where Jesus convinced them with many proofs he opened their eyes to the reality of his deity that he was both man and god and they become followers of the way of Jesus but i think most impressive for us today and we talk about this a lot this is a very important apologetic for us to know in terms of the reliability of scripture the accuracy of the story that we read that's been uh, read to us here today is the fact that there were women also in this group. In Roman society, as well as Jewish society, women were actually seen as second-class citizens to men. They were seen on the same level as children. Women could not vote, they could not get educated in this society to be a good woman, to be have your identity fulfilled as a woman you were supposed to manage your household well. That's what it meant to be a woman in this society. What Jesus did was elevate the role of women, at least in terms of their identity. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3, for there is now no male or female, because you are all one in Jesus Christ. And the role of women was elevated in society. That's why, incredibly, we see not only the 11 disciples and Jesus' brothers, but women, men and women. What does it say in verse 14? In one accord, That means they were unilaterally, universally on the same level. They were one in spirit, they were one in their identity, and they are boldly praying for this kingdom of God to be revealed. That's who the first Christians were ordinary people, and yet very different on the surface. But what was their mission? Now, if I did a show of hands, how many of you have been Christians for longer than a year? Most of you would raise your hands. And if you have been a Christian for a long time, you know the answer to this question. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them my commands, Jesus says. Luke summarizes it here, just go and be my witnesses. But I think that there's something that we miss We sometimes miss the urgency of the mission, and we can't fully understand the mission unless we first understand what's at stake. Let me say that again. We can't fully understand the mission unless we first understand what's at stake, and as we read this account, the disciples did not fully understand the mission at first. Go with me to verse 6. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. And there's three assumptions that they get wrong about the mission of God. Number one, they're looking for a violent revolution. They want the kingdom of Israel to be restored to the glory days of David and Solomon with great wealth, with great power. That's number one. Number two, they want it now. They're like, Jesus, are you going to do it now? Is, Is now the day? And then number three, this is really incredible, they had no idea Despite Jesus' teaching for 40 days, they, they had no idea that they were actually part of the mission. You see what they're doing there? Jesus, when are you going to restore? Are you going to do, do that? It's like they want to sit back and cook some brats and some burgers, maybe crack open some beers. Jesus, we'll just sit back. You take care of this whole kingdom mess. We're good. And Jesus very quickly corrects these wrong assumptions. In verse 7, he says, Number one, it's not for you to know the times or places. That's upper management stuff. You guys aren't there yet. Second of all, it's not going to be a violent revolution. It's going to be a spiritual renewal. Notice how he says, You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit. This is going to be spiritual in nature. It's not going to be a violent revolution. And then thirdly, He says, guess what? You're going to do it. You're going to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, but you are going to go out. And he doubles down on that because as soon as he says it, he deuces and he says, I'm out. And he goes to heaven. and He leaves them there. You can imagine what that must have been like for them. Like the 11 and Mary and Martha and and Jesus' brothers are looking around. Wait, did, did I get, what just happened here? But notice what they do next. They immediately go down from the mountain. They go to an upper room, and they are boldly praying. Again, more detail that Luke gives us in the gospel, it says that they are continuously worshiping. There is all of a sudden this urgency to the mission of God. They're praying for this spiritual renewal. They're worshiping God, waiting for this spiritual renewal. The urgency has all of a sudden come upon them because they also realized what was at stake. They had fully received and understood the the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for them. And this forgiveness that they experienced, this new purpose in life that they experienced, this overwhelming love that God had showered on them, they looked out at their neighbors, at their children, at their wives, and complete strangers, and they said, they don't have this, and they have to have this because our lives are changed. Their lives can be changed. And you see the urgency of the mission suddenly overwhelm their hearts. And in just 30 years, incredibly, these scared group, an excited group of people had brought the gospel all the way to India and Asia, to Russia, to Turkey, to modern-day Germany, to Spain, to Africa, and to the heart of the Roman Empire, to Rome itself, in just 30 years, the gospel spread that rapidly, because the urgency of the mission, what was at stake? was it impressed upon their heart? Which leads us then to our third point. What does this mission have to do with us? Well, you know, I, I think that sometimes we also misunderstand the mission. And it's really easy for us in our Christian world in which we live today, especially here in America, to, to not have that same sense of urgency. Because we've, after all, most of us in the room here today, most of us watching online have never experienced anything like persecution. We, we've been able to come to this place and worship freely. We've been able to have access to all this content, you know, the videos online and the devotions. And, you know, there's more Bibles printed in our Uh, Society than has ever been printed in before. We've got so much access, and sometimes I think because we've had it so easy, our sense of urgency kind of gets diminished. We We don't share that. And yet I'm also sensing that very, very quickly, very, very rapidly, that is changing for us in America. Let me show you what I mean. Some statistics that I found this week In 1957, sociologists uh, say this is like the glory days of the Christian church in America, where 80% of people surveyed believed that Christianity could answer the world's problems. It was a shared and common worldview that all Americans seemed to have at those days. Over half the population attended church weekly. Let me just say that again, weekly. Weekly. We're so desperate uh, that we say that average church attendance or a regular worship attender is like once a month. We're like, well, they came once a month. We'll take them. We're doing great. Weekly. Largest percent of church building growth in history. Not just churches, but orphanages, Lutheran schools, Christian uh, hospitals. The 50s was the glory day, the heyday of the Christian church in America. But now we jump 60 years into the future where these statistics came from, 2020, and something radically different has changed. The Episcopal Church, mainline denomination, Episcopal Church has lost over 70% of its members. Presbyterian Church USA has shrunk from 4.5 million to 1.5. The ELCA, another Lutheran church body in America, has gone from 9 million to 3.14 million, and their own denomination believes that by 2050, that church body will be nearly extinct. And our denomination, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we've lost nearly half of our membership. And scary to me is that the majority of our members now in the LCMS are over the age of 55. Now, that's bad news. We see the decline on this axis of the church. It's going down. At the same time, as I look out into society, and this is why I think that there's a shift happening, that something you can see it, you can you can almost taste it. On the other side of the axis, we see the breakdown of our society beginning to take place in front of our eyes. For example, this year alone, the murder rate is the highest it's been in thirty years. The suicide rate is near all time highs. The divorce rate is at all-time highs. It was in the 80s, but there were less people getting married back then, or or more people getting married back then than we have today. And it could go on and on and on. And if you are a Christian here today, you actually know deep down inside why this is happening. It's been imprinted on your heart because, again, you've had the good news. You've experienced the joy of knowing Jesus loves you despite your sin that he came for you You, you've read about this in scripture this is how the apostle paul describes what is happening when people fall away from a knowledge of a god who loves them unconditionally romans chapter one he writes this furthermore just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of god so god gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, god-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Do you understand why Paul was kicked out of so many places? <laughs> This is not good news. And I understand this is a a heavy-handed scripture, but Paul is pointing us to a deeper reality that we need to think about today. And, And key verse here, 32, he concludes, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. And if this does seem a little heavy handed to you this morning, if you're finding yourself uncomfortably listening to this, I just want to invite you to do something with me. Take this text, take Romans 1, put it down beside you as you open up an app on your phone and read the news. As you watch the evening news, we will see this unfolding before our very eyes, but don't lose this point. If I've lost you up to this point, come on back to me because you need to hear the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, is that God, your heavenly Father, will never stop pursuing you and he will never stop pursuing those who are far from him. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, not just for the frozen chosen of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but for the entire world. The entire world. And how does he do it? Well, Paul summarizes it like this Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. There's that word again zealous for good works. Notice this is not a physical, violent revolution. Again, Paul points us to the interchanging of our heart that flows out of us, that goes out into this world and forms a spiritual renewal through our actions, through our words, through our prayers. And if you don't quite understand that, let me try to put it in an illustration for us as we close. This is my son, J.J., just two days or two hours after he was born. And when he was born, it was a complicated C section. Uh, my daughter Madison also was born by C section. And when the doctors wheeled Amanda, my wife, into the operating table for, for Madison, I was super nervous. I'd never experienced this before. I was about to pass out. The doctor's joking with me, like, hang in there, buddy, you can do it. You know, he was doing his job. But he was very much relaxed. He was having a good time, like he'd done this a million times before. That wasn't the case with J.J., our son. When Amanda got wheeled in and they inserted the epidural, her blood pressure dropped at a very dangerous level. They had to immediately evac J.J. to to deliver him. And by the time the nurse got me into the room, they were almost done with the procedure. That's how fast they had to remove J.J. And suddenly, suddenly the urgency of the mission became very clear to not only the doctor, but to me as a dad. And my prayers were urgent. Oh, Lord, would you please protect my wife? Oh, Lord, would you please protect my son? See, the urgency was there because I knew what was at stake. The doctor knew what was at stake, the health of both son and mom. And two hours later, we get to hold our son The surgeon comes in and tells us, you know, that actually is pretty common. There's nothing for you to worry about. It does happen. And the vital signs on JJ are great. Vital signs on mom are great. And what do we do? We breathe a deep sigh of relief. And we say, thank you, God, for for watching over Amanda and, and JJ. And as is the case, oftentimes in these experiences, the further you remove yourself from the urgency of the situation, you just kind of forget. And it goes in the background of your mind. And so here we were three months later, J.J.'s first Good Friday service. And as the pastor was talking about the brutal suffering and death of God's own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, I'm holding my son and tears are welling up in my eyes and all of a sudden I realized the length that God went to to save not only my life from eternal death and, and sin, but the entire world's, Scripture says. God so loved the world. And so if you're worried about somebody in your life, a son, a daughter, a parent, a family member, a coworker, even strangers out in the world, this should take a little bit of the pressure off of us. Because God loves them even more than you do. And your Heavenly Father will never stop pursuing them. We need to have the urgency, yes. Things are changing, absolutely. But God has also given us this amazing being called the Holy Spirit. He's given us this amazing community. Our Father Lutheran Church, whether you're a member here or you've been worshiping with us, we are in this together and we are not alone. For we have one who will stop at nothing and will equip us, ordinary people, to know and share extraordinary life in Christ. Amen.